Welcome back to another episode of Cogno the Podcast, where we explore different approaches to mental and physical health, ultimately helping you navigate well-being. Thank you for all the comments and feedback so far. It's so great to hear from you. Please, if you do enjoy the podcast, follow us to be the first to know about the latest episodes and help us grow and reach our community. It really does make a big difference. Today we meet Ben Calder, who is a leading practitioner in kinesiology, the Bowen technique, Qigong and shadow work. Ben has over 20 years of experience in well-being and mental health and has been featured on many radio shows and conferences, especially around the Bowen technique. In the episode, we will uncover these approaches to mental and physical health and learn more about integral health approach can play a role in your life. We will also explore Ben's journey into these practices and how to overcome when pain, mobility, limiting beliefs, relationship issues, confusion or doubt is stopping you from taking the next steps. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Kirsty. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you join us on Cogno the Podcast. And I want to start by letting everyone know how we first met. I actually took part in one of your Qigong workshops on the final day at Community Festival. How was your weekend and what was it like having so many people in that workshop? I mean, it was pretty immense, that's for sure. You know, I've been uh, taking Qigong out into the festival world for about uh, eight years now and always get really good response with it. But just to watch how the classes built up over the three days that I offered them there and to have kind of, there was over 115 people there on that final day and really just just enjoying all that energy there so it was an immense weekend and we had such good feedback of it. I'd never had any experience into Qigong and it was amazing to be in that room it was about 7am if yeah. not earlier it was and it was a pretty grey day and suddenly you were in this room and everyone was just on one wavelength building energy it was pretty incredible. That sounds like Qigong to me. It's (laughs) a really nice thing. There's a cohesion in the group that always maximizes the energy. So the more people do it, the stronger the energy field is for everybody. We'll go into a bit more detail on what Qigong is and what the practice means. But I want to hear a little bit more about how you got into holistic health and where your journey started. I mean, like a, a lot of people, I think, that work in the, uh, the world of complementary and holistic therapy, it, it came from a need within myself to, to care for myself. So within our family history, you know, it hadn't been the best of beginnings. And there'd been some stuff that these days we can look back on and see as uh, events that cause significant dysregulation within my nervous system. And that led through to, as a teenager, having all sorts of allergies and problems. And, I, you know, if I was at school these days, there's no doubt that I would have been classed as ADHD uh, and some kind of neurodivergent because I was a very restless, unsettled child. I struggled a lot with school and learning. And in my early 20s, I, I really recognized that I needed to do something about that. So I happened in 1999 to attend a lecture by a lady called Sue Lilly, uh, who her and her husband Simon have always been very good mentors and teachers for me. And it was all about hacking your body's computer. And I just, the, the idea, the premise of kinesiology made such sense to me when she spoke about it, I was like, I need to find somebody to do this. So I went to her after her lecture because uh, we were at a big event and she had a stand there. And I said, hey, I've got these problems going on. Do you think kinesiology could help? And she said, sit down and let's find out. And really, that was kind of the turning point for me that led me deeper into a journey that I'd already been doing bits of over the, the previous years, but nothing as formal as that. And what stage were you at in your life when you went to that conference and 
Uh, I, I would say I was still quite a mess uh, in a lot of ways. I'd through through university, I trained as a primary school teacher and and somehow managed to get to the end of a four year honours degree. I don't know how I did, but at that point, I had significant problems with alcohol and drug use, uh, and I, I'd kind of in '98 decided to uh, go cold turkey and stopped everything and was really becoming aware without the blanket of those things just how much was going on for me and I needed help and and so it began a journey that was already looking at mind body current terms we understand a lot more about the relationship between those two to really have a therapy that could work with me on all of those aspects made a huge difference to my life at the time what were some of like the initial thoughts that you had going through the therapy I think part of it was mystery because the the practitioner who I ended up working with, Frankie Cossey, who's based here in London, uh, she did amazing work for me, but I just didn't understand why what she was doing was creating change for me. She picked up in our first session that my body had a problem metabolizing sugar. Uh, and I remember her saying to me, do you have a sweet tooth? And I said, well, I probably have a couple of chocolate bars a day and a couple of cakes, but I don't think I've got a problem, you know. And and she was like, okay, so you're going to need to stop that. And within about four weeks, the agitation and the stress in my system from detoxing sugar was immense. And it really showed me over the next 12 weeks or so just how dependent I'd become on, you know, something else essentially that I had that addictive nature to, which I think is often the case when you've got uh, this neurodivergence and this dysregulated nervous systems that you're always looking for something and, and so you know I remember Ewan McGregor's character in the second train spotting movie talking about if you're going to be addicted choose what you're addicted to yeah. so that it supports your health so looking back on it now I realized that there was lots of things that I was using as compensation tools and you know I continue to work through the layers you know I, I don't ever think that there's a there for us to get to the idea that that practice makes perfect I think is a, a misconception really it makes progress you know so so those seeds that were begun all the way back then continue to evolve for me. What were some of the methods that she was using at the time to draw that conclusion? Yeah so in the form of kinesiology that uh, Frankie was practicing and that I initially went on to, to train in, we do a combination of techniques. So we can look at, for example, allergy work. We can look at why the body is becoming addicted into substances, which quite often is due to allergy. So as we go into withdrawal from not having a, a thing, we have that reaction. And, you know, we could classically see that with people coming off quite uh, strong drugs. But even to things like sugar, you, you go into withdrawal when you don't have it. And there are responses in the gut that are, are kind of part of that. And, and so by doing allergy work, your body has a better way of processing some of these factors. So we would do physical work like the allergy work. We would do psychological work. So we would look at concepts or ideas or thoughts that were stressful to me. And within kinesiology, you can measure that by a change in the energy within the meridians. So you can really easily see through muscle testing when something is stressing the body and when you've been able to regulate that and put it into a more harmonious state. Is electroacupuncture ever used with that or how do you do the muscle testing? Sure. So manual muscle testing is a physical thing. So originally it was developed as a rehabilitation practice back in the 1930s. And essentially you take 
take any limb and you put it into a position that uh, simulates the way that a specific muscle would contract and then you apply pressure in opposition to that. So essentially if a muscle is pulling in one direction you apply pressure in the opposite direction and the nervous system can either hold the integrity of that movement or it can't and that's based on what kind of stress is being stimulated within the body at the time. That's fascinating that that can reflect allergies and so much more. And yet we do it all the time. One of the things I tell all of the the clients that come and see me for kinesiology is you've done this your whole life, but nobody told you how to interpret it. So the response that we get when we get a piece of bad news, we see a change in the nervous system, we get good news. We see someone we don't like. We see someone we do like. We go somewhere we don't like or we go somewhere we do like. You know, when anybody offers you a choice, you're either going to feel what my brother and I class as red light, green light. So you get that kind of heavy sinking, you know, the nervous system is responding, or you see this expansive opening kind of response in the body. And depending on your sensory acuity, you can observe it in people all the time. We'll definitely explore a bit more into that later on, but I want to introduce the more general concept of integral health. There seems to be an emphasis on addressing multiple aspects of well-being under one umbrella. Can you explain how this encompasses your physical, mental, emotional and spiritual health? And further than that as well, which is the beauty of integral. As a modern theory, it was developed by an American uh, psychologist called Ken Wilber, who was a prolific writer, especially through the 80s, 90s and early part of the thousand. He started to observe, and, and again, Ken would always acknowledge that he's standing on the backs giants so he was able because of the the type of mind that he had to look at how there were always gaps in theories and why it was difficult to overlay different theories with each other and he started to observe that essentially we could divide the world into both subjective and objective aspects objective being measured by the fact that you can point to it in time and space it's got a location subjective hasn't and then individual and collective aspects which then give us four primary dimensions an individual subjective and a collective subjective an individual objective a collective objective so we get the mind which is the interior the subjective part of the self which is in a body the exterior part of the self and that exists within an environment which is the external part of the collective And then it has a culture to it, which is the interior part of the collective. So right now, you are a mind in a body. We are in a culture, in an environment. And you can never reduce your world to anything less than that. And what we recognize within Integral is that all those dimensions can have an effect. So, you know, if we were in Barbados or in Siberia right now, that would change not only the environment, but the type of culture that surrounded it. And that would change both how our bodies behave, and that would come both from our nutrition and our movement, and that would affect the way our minds function. So within Integral, what we're doing at the very basics is we're looking at which of those dimensions is the key into health with somebody. And then we're looking to generate solutions to support any and all of those aspects that are out of balance for that individual. It's interesting because that's almost quite a complex breakdown, obviously, once you sure. explore when you think of it. Yeah. But how did this approach differ from conventional approaches to health at the time? 
If you look at um, conventional medicine, for example, for the most part, it's what we would class as uh, an objective individual aspect. So we just look at the body, its behavior, its mechanics, you know, organ function, neurotransmitters and so on. And it's taken a really long time. And, you know, we remember that modern psychology is only just over 100 years old, really. Uh, and it's taken a long time to recognize that each has an effect on each other. So we know, for example, that, you know, bad diet or lack of movement can affect neurotransmission and that can affect our minds. But we also recognize that negative thinking, you know, poor upbringing, uh, negative reinforcement through our lives affects our minds and that in turn will affect the posture. So we started to see that mind-body connection, you know, kind of in the 80s and 90s, really, even coming out of the 70s. Uh, and that became holistic. Now, Ken also recognised, Ken Wilber also recognised that the dimensions that we weren't really paying attention to so much with the culture, which are essentially our relationships and how the environment can mediate that. But even within kinesiology, although it was never put under the integral framework, we always recognised that where you were living could have an effect. You know, if you were in a, a damp basement flat and, you know, loads of mould and the work culture that you had was terrible or your relationship was poor, we knew that had an effect on mind-body health. But Ken was the first person to really construct that four-quadrant map uh, that we call the all-quadrant, all-level map, the aqua map. Yes, it is simple in one way, but life isn't simple. Life is complex. And as time goes on, we get increasing complexity and increasing depth. So we need a model that helps us recognize and reflect all of those aspects that can have an effect. And, you know, modern medicine is great. It does certain things really well. But we know there's a whole bunch of stuff, which essentially metabolic illness, autoimmune illness, you know, long-term chronic mental health, that it really struggles to deal with successfully. So we have to broaden our approach to be able to have a really good uh, impact on those effects. A lot of the approaches we've been exploring, even on the podcast so far, have all touched on that mind-body connection. And it seems that when you do really delve into health and well-being as an all-encompassing terminology the mind-body connection is very well understood. But what do you think the common misconceptions that prevent it from entering into conventional medicine? I think a lot of the time we have very reductive methods within health. We want to try and reduce it down to a single thing. You know, so quite often when people come and see me, a lot of the time they're turning up because of allergy type work. So their understanding is that there's a thing, an object that is having an effect on them. And if they can get rid of that, they'll be okay. But as soon as you start to have a conversation with people like in the last 20 years I don't think I've met somebody with irritable bowel syndrome that doesn't have anxiety now is that you know where's the chicken and egg in that we don't know which way round it goes but with a tool like kinesiology or if we use a functional approach or an integral approach then we can actually start to understand well which came first were you anxious before you start to notice the digestive problems or did the digestive problems turn up first I guess the one big question that really springs to mind, how do you then narrow it down client by client? Yeah, sure. Well, that's the beauty of kinesiology. The way I've, I've kind of conceptualized it for myself, and it's part of how my brain works and, and why it works really well as a tool for me, is I see it as a series of flow diagrams. And I have a series of starting points. So using muscle testing, we can find out whether or not any one of those starting points, which if we break it down integrally, could be body, mind, 
culture, environment, see which one of those starting points is a priority. And then we can track down through that how we need to work with it. It's always going to be difficult to convey that verbally, but to demonstrate kinesiology with somebody, it really makes a lot of sense for people. And people often come out of a session going, wow, now I get why that was having an effect on me, because we can demonstrate it with them. So we can see both how the presence of the stressor has an effect on them, whether that be a mental stressor, a physical stressor, you know, the idea of their relationship, or perhaps something like an environmental toxin. We can demonstrate that and how those procedures that we can bring in with kinesiology can then mitigate the stress that's caused by it. It's almost like creating a Venn diagram in my head of like the way you're talking about it, of bringing everything together and yeah. like eventually getting to that central point and it's always unique as well so and I think this is also one of the reasons why conventional approaches really struggle because they want to group as much as possible and I've heard it said recently that you know when we look at diet plans or we look at lifestyle hacks that they will always work for a percentage of people but not everybody and that's because there are gross generalizations that we can make about certain things. You know, like if we eat uh, like really burnt food, it's going to cause more of a, an issue within the body because of uh, all of those toxins that are involved in that. But everybody is somewhere within those bell curves and we need to be able to address people individually. And because, I mean, you know, when we look at the levels of illness that we're seeing at the moment, waiting lists within the NHS, the struggle that they're having, it's really difficult for them with the approach that they have to be able to be so individual. But that that means a lot of people get left out of having an approach that really listens to their story, understands how they got where they got to. What would be the first steps you took if someone came to you with something that wasn't necessarily a physical symptom? It's a really useful point to make because from an integral point of view, we talk about the fact that you can't have a change in one sphere without a change in the other. So as a simple example, if you are having thought processes that are detrimental to you, let's say you're a negative thinker or you're constantly criticizing yourself, you will assume body positions, postures, movements in relation to that. So the subjective always has an effect on the objective. At the same time, if you like have an accident, you stub your toe, you fall over, you're in a car crash, that will create thoughts around that idea. A contraction in one side always brings about a contraction in the other. The entanglement is working out which way do you address it. Would you apply something that's body orientated, like the Bowen technique, for example, or some of the other more physical kinesiology methods? Or would we look at coming from the more subjective side and look at psychological work, relationship work, something else? Where is the place that's holding the most gravitas within that, that if we change that, will have the biggest effect on everything else. Does it become quite difficult then working with clients when it's going to take a different perspective or to navigate their specific well-being to use the tools that you've been trained in? I, I don't really find so, no. For, for a start-off, it's really interesting and it's really exciting to explore that with people. Let's be curious about this. And, and also, I try and move people away from the concept of the magic bullet. You know, yeah, there isn't yeah. a pill or a thing that suddenly you're going to be better from it. 
and there are layers involved in it because any time that we're in a state of imbalance or disease, we're also affected all the time around us. So you spend an hour or, or whatever with me and then you go out into a world where there may be things that accelerate your healing or decelerate it. it it's like a good piece of scientific experiment. We have a theory about what we think needs changing. We construct an experiment do this, don't do this, include that, don't include that. And then you go away and you put it into practice and you work out how the real world limitations interact with that. And then you come back and we go, okay, well, how did it go? And then we refine it again. So we measure progress over time without thinking, A, there's one particular place that you have to be or that something can't have an effect on that that changes the course of what we prioritize or how we go about it. For people who don't necessarily have access to a practitioner, what would be your advice for someone who wanted to take the, those core principles and resonated with some of the things you were saying, especially about those four quadrants, and integrate that into their daily life? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think we're all capable of self-assessment. We need to understand that we have subjective bias within that. So there's always going to be stuff that we, we don't want to do. In kinesiology, I kind of joke that you'll get the answer that you look for if you're not able to be objective about it. Almost never are you going to test that chocolate cake is good for you, mm -hmm. you know, unless you're asking about emotionally. So it's all about context. We can all kind of ask the questions, which of my mental habits are supporting me, which are not? Which of my physical behaviors are supporting me, which are not? What, which of my relationships support me, which are not? What parts of my environment make me feel better, which don't? And then we can try and work out how to adjust those things bit by bit at the rate that we can. So if we just assess what it is that we think is benefiting us and not benefiting us, we come back to red light, green light. It's this idea that something is either inhibiting what I want to be, how I want to be, who I want to be, or it's supporting it. And there are lots of tools online to help you do those kind of things. I mean, you know, Jordan Peterson's self-authoring uh, program, for example, allows you to kind of construct the vision of where you want to go to. Uh, you can do physical assessments to look at your health, you know, even things like Couch to 5K. There are plenty of ways that people can easily, cheaply start to do this. But it is always easier if you have support, if you have somebody championing, championing you, helping you celebrate the things that you're getting right, but also helping to assess the places where maybe you're not getting it as good as you could do. I'm really interested to build off that and ask you a bit about epigenetics and how that feeds into this practice. For those that don't know, epigenetics is the study of how your behaviours and environment can cause changes to the ways that your genes work. It's a concept that I was introduced to really early on before I ever studied psychology and it really fascinated. But how does that feed into this practice? For me, it's always been a real deepening of the functional biochemistry within the kind of the body and its behavior and how it constructs itself. Just because we have genetic predisposition for something does not mean that it will express itself in our lives. Now, when people see patterns turn up in their families, they often think they're genetic, but they're more likely to be familial in the fact that because we grow up in the same environment, those are familial patterns, they're not genetic, but they will have an impact on those genetics because, again, everything that we're taking into the body, and that's both psychologically, emotionally, energetically, and physically in terms of food, air, 
products that we use on our skin, cleaning products, they're all informing the genetics about what's going on in the environment. You know, and this goes right back into the 80s with Candice Pert, who was one of the first people to discover cell receptor sites, who developed the field of psychoneuroimmunology. The, that perception, that thought process changes neurotransmission and, and hormone release within the body. And that's just on the basis of what you think. Then put into that, let's say, ultra-processed foods or you're picking up toxic metals. You know, A lot of people don't realize that a lot of chicken and rice are riddled with arsenic. So all of that information is then going in and either supporting health or inhibiting it. A lot of that seems like there's a lot of small changes that someone can make to try and benefit their well-being, even if it's not every quadrant. Absolutely, yeah. And again, you want to do what you can. For some of us, for various socioeconomic reasons, there are limits to how much we can change things. We could all create an idealised process of how we would like to be, but what we can actually manage at this point. I think it's really important to recognise that even as you and I are sat here now, we can regulate our breathing, we could regulate our posture, we could regulate our hydration. There are always minute refinements that can be made on any day. If we stop putting all of the emphasis on the big changes and recognize that actually I have got the capability uh, and the resources to do a lot of really simple stuff that can all go a long way to making a difference, we empower ourselves for a start off because we're not making it like, well, I can't afford to do that or I can't, you know, I don't know anybody that can do that with me or I don't have the time. Completely. And I think a lot of it does come back to access, education and making sure because we're all exposed to so many things that do the opposite of what we've just discussed. So I think by making those small changes, as you say, it can make it easier for someone to take on that approach. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on to the next technique, I want to ask you to summarise the Bowen technique and where it's come from and what it means. So the Bowen technique was developed by an Australian called Tom Bowen. And he wasn't formally trained in any kind of body work, although throughout his life and career, he went on to uh, learn more about why what he did was having an effect. But essentially, it's a light touch, soft tissue manipulation so we're doing very gentle, very specific types of moves, something that became known as the Bowen move. And it's going across the fibers of certain connective tissues, muscles, tendons, ligaments, and it's affecting the fascia, the connective tissue through the body. And I always conceptualize it as a signaling tool. So what it's doing is it's putting an input into a specific part of the body and then we come hands off, we let the body have a little pause, have a little think about it. And because it's light touch, it shouldn't generally be painful. And because of that, the body goes into this kind of mode of curiosity. What's going on here? What, what's that about? And it allows the tissue to make changes for itself very rapidly very easily, very gently. So you could broadly put it under the category of fascia release type techniques, although there's a lot of discussion about are we actually releasing anything. Really, I see it as an input, and we're asking the body to kind of make a change. So within a good Bowen session, what we're doing is we're both assessing 
and correcting. We're looking for things that uh, don't seem in the right alignment for that individual and then questioning the body. So I, I kind of describe it as a nonverbal question into the body and it's a little bit like dropping a stone into a pond. We drop the move in at a particular place and then we wait for the ripples to spread through and then we come back and using gentle palpation with the hands we're assessing then the changes that have been made on the tissue. In some cases it's really obvious to see because people have pain you can see that they're holding their body in particular postures and when we apply the Bowen technique we can almost instantly see changes within tissue as we observe it through palpation but also people often very very quickly report those changes and they'll feel more upright they'll feel like their feet are more on the ground they'll be able to be in connection with parts of their body that they maybe weren't aware of before and other things that they've become hyper aware of don't seem to be drawing the attention in the same way this might be a potentially silly question but i wonder if anyone else might be thinking it as well does it have similar core principles to acupuncture it's a good question and uh, to reassure you there's no such things as stupid questions <laughs> no, true yeah. i know i should definitely be saying that <laughs> but yeah absolutely one of the things that was uh, really interesting for uh, tom bowen as he went on in his career is he did a lot of reading in acupuncture because he found and we, we've subsequently continued to confirm that a lot of the key moves that we use in bowen technique are directly over key acupuncture acupuncture points so they tend to be interestingly key holding points within the tissue and in the same way that an acupuncturist can use needling within those points to create a change uh, in the uh, the charge through the meridian and through the tissue by doing the type of move that we're doing we seem to be having a similar effect as well and it's just people finding that process that suits them. I guess that's the thing that comes back to access as well and knowing what's available. In what ways and in what settings would you naturally integrate the Bowen technique with your practice? Yeah. So there tends to be two ways that it comes up for me. The first is somebody has got some kind of uh, physical debility. They've got pain, restricted movement, they're in some kind of trauma, surgery or accident recovery and they know that something about them physically is not right and they want a manipulation style approach to see if that can address it. In the same way that you might choose to go and see a chiropractor or an osteopath, massage practitioner, they would come in that way. The other way that it tends to turn up for me is that as part of a kinesiology approach and working within that integral framework that the body highlights that what it needs is some kind of structural adjustment and then we can tailor exactly what it is we're doing within that using kinesiology protocols. Is it something that people can use on a one-off basis for something very direct? Yeah, definitely. There's a hesitation in it's like a yes and a no answer. So uh, again, you know, you and I uh, met at the festival over the summer and within those festivals, the other thing that I tend to do is Bowen technique. So I I have people there, uh, we have a stand and people come in, we do treatments for them. You know, people can get immense relief out of an individual session. And it's a little bit like, and and I use an analogy of a car a lot with it, a very easy crossover, that if my car gets serviced regularly and I put good fuel in it, good parts in it, and I drive it well, I'm more likely to get longevity out of it. That never accounts for how bumpy the roads in my life are, but I'm more likely to do well with that. Now, even a one-off treatment can create significant change for people, but it depends on whether or not there are aspects of their lifestyle, which again, behavior, mindset, 
working practices and so on, if those are causative in why the issue is there. So if they are, then it's likely that that problem, whether it be over a matter of days, weeks or months, is going to reoccur in some way, which is why I find real uh, value in the integral approach, because we're able to then consider well, what is it that got you there? And, and if we change that, that, that and that, along with your Bowen session, then you're more likely to get a longer and healthier response out of it. Sounds fascinating. How does Qigong complement this? And if you could give a bit of an overview as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Qigong for me very simply is a mindful movement practice. Many of us will have seen versions of it in Tai Chi. So there are over uh, three and a half thousand forms of Qigong around the world uh, and they essentially all come down to the basics of moving and breathing. There's different kind of branches of it ranging from the more martial end which is where we see the Tai Chi and some of what classes the internal martial arts all the way through to the health and vitality and the medical versions. So in China there are actually hospitals of Qigong and they will teach you exercises that you go away and practice and they're there to restore health and vitality for you. One of the things I love about Qigong is that A, I can use it as self-assessment. When you've had a good teacher and you've been taught a process, you're actually going through assessing what's going on in my body, mind, energy, you know, on this day to day. Then the practices themselves enable you to shift and change physically, emotionally, mentally, energetically uh, in a way that then regulates you. So I see it as just resetting and coming back to center. We can't escape the fact that modern life off-centers us. You know, whether it be the driver that cuts us off, the boss that asks us to work late, the baby that kept us up. So for me, Qigong is a way of dissolving the residues that build up from those things and bringing the body back into a state of equanimity. What would be your advice to people who want to be able to just have that mindful practice in their day-to-day -day life? I think the, the simplest way of engaging in a practice like Qigong is to be present with your movement. So when you observe how you move and how you breathe, then anything can become Qigong. There's, there's lots of grandiose looking movements. And in the same way that the yoga movements got kind of like these extreme Instagram style, you know, kind of yogis doing all sorts of stuff that looks magnanimous. Actually, the simplest forms of Qigong, when we recognize our breathing, our movement, we can actually do it while we're doing the washing up. We can adjust how we stand. So just being mindful. And again, in Life Force Qigong, which is the system that I teach, we come back to red light, green light. So I'm either in a state where I feel balanced and harmonious or I'm not. And, you know, the, there's loads of examples of Qigong on something like YouTube, for example, but there's a massive range in quality. And, and a lot of Qigong that we see, uh, we would class as empty in the fact that we're not actually seeing people move energy within there. We're seeing them do nice coordinated movement with breathing. It's really interesting. In what real life circumstances would you say that Qigong is something to explore? Essentially, when you haven't got access to any other resources, because I don't need anything but myself. So it doesn't matter where I am. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. It doesn't matter who I'm with. It's something that I can use to create uh, a deeper sense of center, 
uh, a deeper sense of energy for myself, grounding, stability. We tend to be attracted to what's the strongest energy within a space, whether that be vitalizing, healthy, beneficial or not. And it teaches us really when we're out of that center for ourselves. Because if I've given my center over to someone or something else, when it moves or they move, I move. By working on cultivating energy for myself, I have this deeper sense of harmony between myself and the environment. You know, we've all had experiences where we've had a piece of information or we've been with somebody and we can feel totally dysregulated by that. And sometimes that only lasts a couple of minutes, but often it lasts for a couple of hours, a couple of days, maybe longer. And that's that inability to bring ourselves back to our own center. And it's just a matter of conditioning and practice. And I love using the phrase, we become the thing we practice the most. So if you want to be grounded, balanced and centered, you need to practice grounding, balancing and centering. It's a lot with self-discipline, as yep. with a lot of the approaches that we've been exploring. There's so much out there, but being able to motivate yourself and bring yourself to do it can be really challenging. But yeah. I suppose from what we've spoken about as well, often when it is particularly challenging, perhaps a way of looking at it is it's because something's off-centre. Exactly. And uh, there's a great phrase that says, if you haven't got time to meditate for 10 minutes, meditate for an hour. I could practice that myself, maybe. <laughs> And just moving into the fourth approach of shadow work, if you could just give a bit of an explanation. When we look at integral from a, a pragmatic point of view, Ken Wilber developed something called integral life practice, and he developed four core aspects that really we wanted to put some attention on pretty much every day. The first is the body through movement and through nutrition. The second is the mind, somehow enriching ourselves, whether it be through study or a practice or something that engages us. The third is spirit, some kind of contemplative or other practice that allows us to get in touch with a deeper thing beyond the self or the deepest parts of the self. And the last is the shadow. Now, the shadow is an aspect of our unconscious. In that sense, it's something that's really difficult to understand because it's unconscious. A lot of the time, it's about the stuff that we perceive as outside of ourselves. It's the objects that we like to give responsibility for, for our response. And it's a lot about the things that at some level we don't believe we are. And this often comes through conditioning through childhood, although we can develop new shadow elements at any point in our lives. And those can both be detrimental, negative, uncomfortable things, but they can also be what we call the gold in the shadow. They can be our inspirations, our highest qualities. And let's say as a child you wanted to sing, you know, and so you would find expression, but you didn't have people around you that supported that and they criticized you whenever you did it. You would unconsciously push that away and you would decide it's better if I don't do that so you stop singing but then you might idolize people that are amazing singers so there's this aspect of the shadow is something that I observe outside of me and I don't believe it's something I am and it's always a case of the thing outside of me is bigger than me and it is a survival technique it's a way for us to navigate environments that are hostile which is to prune out behaviors that get criticized or punished uh, as we go through. It's a way of becoming more whole. We're, we're rendering our psyche into separate parts. The persona, the masks that we wear, the things that we believe that we are and that we think are going to be most validated by the world. It's interesting with 
unconscious phenomenon because I think it can be a really difficult thing in itself to navigate and often people put like intrusive thoughts under that umbrella I feel because you often feel like you're not in control of that and how your mind's speaking to yourself how do you go about starting to break that down like out of the shadow part of it is to recognize that it's happening a lot of the time in shadow work we we talk about how you know if we're dreaming of being chased by a monster you know we don't recognize we don't accept that we are that monster and what we need to do is engage with it and try and understand its role try and understand its purpose and our place in our lives so um, there's two really interesting techniques that I've worked a lot with the first is something called voice dialogues which was developed by Hal and Sidra Stone in the 70s and from that my Zen teacher Genpo Roshi developed a practice called Big Mind where we recognize that there are these voices inside of us and we can name them, you know, so we can highlight uh, the controller, the protector, the critic, the victim, you know, all of these different parts of ourselves. And when we actually have a dialogue with them, for a start off, we've already created a shift because we're recognizing that there's a way to deal with this and then when we try and understand what that thing is trying to do most of the time it's trying to get us to a better place but the method that it's going about it is not necessarily functional Mm -hmm. so one of my favorites is a saboteur you know a lot of us can recognize that we self-sabotage when we look at the role of the saboteur in our life it's going to sabotage anything that it puts its hand to So what about if we employ it to sabotage us when we're going to do something harmful, when we're going to do something that doesn't support the vision we have? And recognizing that that thing is not separate from us, that it is part of us and we can do something with it and we can employ those voices so that they don't come out unconsciously, but actually by having a conscious relationship with it, we've taken it out of the... Uh, the shadow and and kind of integrated it back into us so we become a more whole person for it it's a lot to put your head around when you're thinking for yourself and applying it because I think that so clear when you say it like that but actually when you go about applying it yourself and that's I guess where having access and having guidance is so important so when you put these all together in practices or with clients would you find yourself using all of these approaches Not necessarily all in one session, although we can have a really diverse range of practices within a single (laughs) session as well. Uh, But it it, it depends on why the person is there. And it's amazing sometimes that when people come in for stuff that's maybe on the surface looking more psychological, it might be down to spinal misalignment or something that's in their diet that's creating toxicity, that's changing neurochemistry, that's making more likely to have, you know, kind of really dark thought. Or the stuff that can be released by a parasite infection can create psychological changes just in the same way that psychological uh, processes, thoughts can also create changes in how we hold the body that then lead to physical pain. You know, as I mentioned earlier, so many cases of IBS you see with people who are anxious. So it's always a case of working out which way to do this. It's always about taking the step that's right for each person. And I let their nervous system, their energetic system guide that because they know far better than I do how they got there and what the best way to help uh, realign that into a more complete form of health is for them. What are some of the core things from, I guess, your training, but also your teachings 
that really stuck with you? You need to frame what you want. So focus on the outcome you're looking for, whether it be peace, happiness, you know, balance, harmony, whatever it is, focus on that. Don't focus on what you don't want. Because if I ask you to think of a flower, you're going to think of a flower. But if I ask you not to think about a butterfly... Still going to think of the butterfly. Yeah, sure. So, and again, the way the nervous system responds is that whatever we focus on is where those neuronal pathways are going to add energy into. And and I remember a story of uh, of two brothers who uh, went in wildly different paths in their lives. One of them who uh, became uh, addicted to drugs, alcohol, and had a really difficult life. And the other one who went on to be a very successful entrepreneur who lived a wonderful life. And when they were asked what was the catalyst for it, they both said, my alcoholic father. You know, so it's entirely up to you what you do with stuff. And I, I think if there's something that you know, people take away from this, it really is, you know, you have the power, you have the choice to make those changes. And yes, sometimes we need support to do that and encouragement to do that. But ultimately, be your own cheerleader. You know, it's one of the ways I got myself out of some of my own mental health issues is I used to look in the mirror and, and doing a terrible impression of Matt LeBlanc when he was Joey and friends, I'd go, how are you doing? You know, and it would make me laugh. And that started to allow me to feel better about looking at myself, about being okay with myself. And I realized I could change me. And that's another thing that the Qigong really does for me. That's another thing that dietary choice does for me. It's an amazing place to have got to. idea that you become the thing you practice the most. If you want health, you've got to practice health. So again, working out which bits you're doing that are not helping, which bits that you're doing that are helping, do more of one and less of the other. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I'm going to link your practice and everything. So if anyone does want to reach out, please feel free or to Ben directly. Unfortunately, we do have to wrap up the longer questions there, but we're just going to do a very quick fire round of questions. Ben, what is your favourite colour? Blue. Favourite cuisine? Indian. A country you'd like to visit? Peru. The best book you've read? um, Brief Theory of Everything by Ken Wilber. Your go-to karaoke song? Gosh, that's a good one. Um, It would always be a Queens of the Stone Age number. Coffee or matcha? Coffee. Are you an early morning person or a late night person? Late night. Are you into reading or podcasts? Both. Qigong or yoga? Qigong. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. It was great to have you on.